What's going on, everyone? It's Wednesday, March 23rd, and we're back at it again with another episode of the Hustle Daily Show. I'm Zachary Crockett. I'm here with Rob Litterst. What's up, Zach? And we've got our director of trends, Steph Smith, back with us. Hey, guys. Good to be here. Today, we're talking in-flight Wi-Fi. It sucks, and I think we can all agree on that. But Starlink, that's SpaceX's satellite internet division, they're working on a potential solution. We're going to get into why the current services are so bad and why SpaceX thinks the industry is ripe for an overhaul. Also on the agenda, the role Substack is going to play or maybe not play in the future of media. But before we get into that, let's do the news. There's no secret formula for scaling support and boosting customer satisfaction. But there is the all-new service hub from HubSpot. It makes it infinitely easier to scale customer support and increase retention. By bringing service and support together in one powerful platform, you can deliver the best experiences for your customers and your teams. Free up time for your reps to focus on complex issues with an AI-powered help desk. Proactively drive retention with customer health scores that help keep your business ahead, stopping churn in its tracks. And give your entire go-to-market team the data they need to operate as one unified, powerful front. Also, you can better connect with customers and keep them happy. Secrets out. HubSpot Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. The SEC proposed a new set of climate rules that would provide more transparency into how public companies are tackling the climate crisis. The rules would require reporting on emissions directly from a company, but also emissions resulting from that company's suppliers and partners. And lastly, a little more drama brewing over at BuzzFeed. The website's editor-in-chief, Mark Schufs, and two other top editors are stepping down. The news comes in the midst of a subpar financial performance. The company's earnings fell 12% at the end of last year, and it's expected to lose around 15 to 20 million in the first quarter of this year. The head honchos there are blaming it on Facebook's declining audience. All right, let's get into the good stuff. So to start off here, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on in-flight Wi-Fi. Like for me, it's so bad that I don't even attempt to use it when I get onto an airplane. Yeah, so whether or not I use in-flight Wi-Fi completely depends on whether or not I have pressing work to do. If I have pressing work to do, I'm 100% going to try to use it even though it sucks and I know it's kind of like a 50-50 coin flip if it's going to work or not. But if I do not have pressing work, I am 100% a shut off Wi-Fi, read a book and just disconnect for the flight type person. (laughs) That's so funny because I never use in-flight Wi-Fi. I didn't even know it was that terrible because I, I feel like there's just an element of like pricing psychology, the same way that people didn't want to spend more than 99 cents on an app. I'm like, I'm not paying 10 bucks for Wi-Fi on a plane. Like something about it, just I've never done it. And I probably will eventually I'll get over that hump. But that's something that I've actually never done. Zach, do you use it? No, I'm totally in the same boat as Steph here. I refuse to pay. I mean, I won't even spend $10 on a t-shirt, so I'm not going to spend $10 (laughs) on in-flight Wi-Fi. But it just like never really seems to function or work. So Rob, I'm curious to start us off here. Who are the current major players? Who are the people controlling the skies, so to speak, right now? Yeah, so there are a bunch of players in in in-flight Wi-Fi. The two leaders, at least in the U.S. market, are Viasat and GoGo, which is actually owned by another company, or at least their aviation connectivity or internet Wi-Fi division is owned by Intelsat. Mm. 
The weird thing about in-flight Wi-Fi is I think maybe in some cases there are exclusive agreements with one or the other, but a lot of airlines use both. And it feels almost kind of like, I know we've covered this before, but how Boeing and Aerobus like kind of have a duopoly and are totally fine with not really taking over the entire market because this relationship that they have with each other allows them to like kind of control prices with, Mm -hmm. and that's with airplanes. It kind of seems like something a little similar is going on with in-flight Wi-Fi. But generally speaking, what I was able to find is Viasat is mainly used by Delta, which used to use GoGo. It powers JetBlue's in-flight Wi-Fi and Virgin Airlines. GoGo powers United, American Airlines, and Alaska Airlines. And how does this Wi-Fi typically work? The interesting thing about in-flight Wi-Fi is there are a couple different ways to access it. The more traditional method is towers on the ground, which is similar to the internet that we use in our regular lives at home. Or you can use satellites in the sky. Satellite connectivity tends to be better than the towers on the ground, which is why more and more planes have transitioned to this satellite model. And that's really kind of where Starlink comes into this conversation. Obviously, Starlink's entire business is satellite-powered internet. So... A lot of planes have transitioned to satellites. Smaller planes cannot get fitted for the transponders or whatever they're called that actually connect them to satellite Wi-Fi. So some of them still use towers Hmm. to power their in-flight Wi-Fi. But generally speaking, it comes from those two places. So this is obviously a huge market. I think a recent report valued the sector around $3 billion, but it's predicted that in-flight Wi-Fi could grow to around $6.7 billion in 2027. So there's a huge market here. And, uh, you know, SpaceX and Starlink obviously see this opportunity. But how does Starlink differ from the competition? What exactly is their promise of disrupting this market? Yeah, so there are two really big advantages, hypothetically, the Starlink has. We'll see how it all bears out if they actually go through with this. But first of all, Starlink has satellites that orbit closer to Earth than GoGo or Viasat, which just gives them closer proximity to planes, which could mean faster Wi-Fi speeds if they do ultimately roll out this in-flight Wi-Fi. The other thing is Starlink has 2,000 satellites in the sky right now. Sometimes when you get a lag in your in-flight Wi-Fi, it's because the coverage that you're getting is moving from one satellite to the other. And just for comparison's sake, looking at Viasat, they operate four satellites in the sky and GoGo operates around 25, or they draw their Wi-Fi from around 25. So obviously, Starlink with 2,000 satellites has a lot more coverage, the opportunity to have a lot better connectivity for global flights. I'm sure there are nuances there. I would imagine that the satellites that Viasat and GoGo are operating are differentiated in some way from Starlink's. Mm -hmm. But those are, on paper, kind of the two biggest advantages that Starlink has. Sure. I wonder if these airlines just haven't found the right business model for in-flight Wi-Fi. I don't know if it's 100% correct, but the Wall Street Journal predicts that around 6 to 7% of passengers are buying in-flight Wi-Fi. But there was another Forbes article said that 85% of passengers surveyed said that they would use the Wi-Fi if it was free. And so wow. I wonder yeah. if they're just positioning this wrong, right? I, I assume that it's quite expensive for the airline, and so they're looking for that money back immediately. But I wonder if they could provide the Wi-Fi for free and just have a heavily ad-based model. I mean, one of the mm-hmm. most lucrative parts of an ad-based model in an airplane is that you have that person's full 
full attention, totally. right? They're not driving along the highway <laughs> seeing, yeah, a billboard. They are fully captive in whatever you show them. And so maybe these airlines just need to partner with the right partners who want that captive attention in order to provide that Wi-Fi for free. Because I don't know, do you guys agree if, if Wi-Fi was free and decent on an airplane, would you prefer that or would you still you know, go for your book or the movie on your screen? Oh, yeah. Well, Wi-Fi is free on JetBlue flights, and that is one of the reasons that I fly JetBlue. If I if I mm. know that I'm going to need to get stuff done, I will 100% fly JetBlue because of that. So I would totally do that. I, I love that idea, Steph. That feels like a much better path to getting from $3 billion to $6.7 billion than just jacking up the prices. I mean, that <laughs> because right now people already complain about the prices. I don't really see them being able to charge too much more than $10 for a flight. I feel like that's intuitive, Steph. That makes a lot of sense. Mm. One of the things I was curious about is how this particular study projected that this in-flight Wi-Fi market would double in the next, what is it, like five years. It surprised me a little bit because business travel is not dead, but it has been on the decline. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing that be replaced with more recreational travel and from my personal, very anecdotal experience, people are less likely to use the Wi-Fi on a recreational trip. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know what the driving forces are for this in-flight Wi-Fi market growing. Yeah. It's a really good question. You mentioned the ad model stuff, which I think makes a ton of sense. I also feel like there's a big difference between, you know, $10 for internet for a flight and $0 for a flight. So I think there is a chance for them, even if they lower prices to, you know, $5 for a flight or, or whatever it might be for them to get deeper penetration into actual passengers and, and actually get more people to use in-flight Wi-Fi. But I don't know. It's a really good question. You know, I didn't even think about that calculus, but $10 to spend on Wi-Fi in a flight clearly is not a crazy amount, but there is just that psychological blocker. And so I wonder if more airlines took the JetBlue model where they could just tack on that $10 and I don't think their conversion rate in buying the ticket would change that much. But then they would become this airline that provides unlimited Wi-Fi for all passengers for free. I wonder if that would actually be a strong differentiator that wouldn't offset the economics very much. Totally. Or make it part of like your flyer rewards program, which I, I would imagine somebody's doing that right now. But that just feels super intuitive to me, too. Hey, everybody. I got a great podcast to tell you about. It's called Truth, Lies, and Work. And it's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this show, you can join husband and wife team Alan, Leanne, Elliot as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. They actually just did an episode with John Smith, who is the manager and agent of famous Argentinian soccer player Diego Maradona. He talks about in this episode how he was able to manage the global superstar athlete celebrity that Maradona is and was. It's a great listen. You better get out there and check it out. And you can listen to Truth, Lies, and Work wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So moving on here, we obviously work at a newsletter and call me biased, but I think we're one of the best newsletters out there. At the same time, there's obviously this, this big shift happening on Substack. All these individual creators are taking their audiences into their own hands. Last year, Substack raised a ton of capital, tens of millions of dollars. A few weeks back, they launched an iOS reader app that basically puts all of the users' newsletter subscriptions in one inbox. So I kind of just want to open it up and, and pose this generally, but where do you think the creator economy is headed and, and what role do you think Substack might play in the future of this media landscape that they're building out? I would love to hear Steph's thoughts on this because I know Steph has thoughts on Substack and obviously knows the creator economy like the back of her hand. Um, <laughs> Steph, how do you feel about Substack? So 
I do have opinions on Substack that maybe some people wouldn't agree with. I think that it serves a purpose, the purpose specifically being for creators that want to monetize immediately and want to do so through subscription. However, I think Substack's goal is to almost like create a creator middle class, and I don't think they actually accomplish that. I still think that with the subscription model, you see a Pareto-esque result, which is that Mm -hmm. a few creators make a lot and a lot of creators make almost nothing. And so I don't know if the Substack model is almost like accomplishing the goal that they prescribe. And I think ultimately Substack is going to run into serious headwinds because the creators that do super well on their platform are going to be incentivized and already have shown this behavior to move away from Substack Mm. once they're successful because of the massive cut that they take from those creators. I think it's like 10%. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I 100% agree with that take. Um, You know, I I come from a little bit more of a traditional media background, and I've had a lot of friends leave, you know, prestigious publications to work at Substack. But, you know, I'm totally seeing the same thing. I, In my opinion, I think Substack just amplifies people who already have a big following to begin with. And I, I don't know how great it's been for people trying to build something from scratch on their platform, like this promise Steph mentioned of building a kind of a creator middle class. I I don't really see how that's going to come to fruition. Yeah, I can speak to that a little bit. Um, So I actually have a sub stack called Good Better Best. It's all about pricing and packaging strategy because when I started it, I was working as a pricing consultant for software companies. And it actually led to me working here at The Hustle. The Trung found it. I started writing with Trung and, and mm-hmm. doing a little freelancing, and, and that's ultimately how I ended up here. So I, I love Substack for that. It's also definitely, I think, the easiest way to start a newsletter, honestly. It's, it's just extremely easy to use. It's super intuitive. The biggest kind of criticism of Substack, you guys nailed on the head. It's, it's creating this creator middle class, which is really, really hard. I mean, there are there are a lot of people on Substack who have, you know, fewer than a thousand subscribers. So just for full transparency, I, I got up to around 3000 subscribers. A big reason for that is I met Trung and Trung started featuring some of the things that I was writing in the mm-hmm. hustle. So the hustle helped my Substack grow. Are those paid subscribers or? No, free? those are free subscribers. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the other part of it too, Steph, is like Nathan Bashes wrote this awesome post about Substack's ideology. Nathan is the co-founder of Every, this writer collective. And he was actually, I think, employee number three or four at Substack before leaving to found Every. And they are very, very gung-ho about the subscriber model, which it's really interesting to me because Packy McCormick has a Substack um, called Not Boring. You guys have probably heard about it. It's definitely one of the most successful case studies of Substack. And he has over 100,000 subscribers. So like his Substack has gotten really, really big. He made over a million dollars in 2021 with his Substack. But mostly not from the subscriptions, right? I think he was doing massive brand deals. None of it is subscriptions. Deals. Exactly. That's what I was going to say is it's all advertising. And the mm. guys from Substack haven't reached out to Packy once, at least when he was on this podcast, which was at the end of 2021, they hadn't reached out to him to kind of like get his thoughts on the platform or talk to him about it or anything like that at all. It was almost like he kind of didn't exist in their mind because he runs this ad model, which is mm. really interesting to me. I think if they were more open to that, which... You know, they started it for their own reasons. I think a big part of it is they feel like advertising really jeopardizes what kind of content you're going to get and the biases that people have, which is totally fair. But um, it was just really interesting to me that they hadn't even really made an effort to to branch out to Packy, this guy who's absolutely killing it on Substack. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think subsex model almost has a couple things that don't quite align with one another in the sense that they are, in theory, trying to build this creator middle class, but they are a venture-backed company. And that's not a problem. But at the end of the day, if you truly were trying to provide the best experience for creators, the 10% cut is going to become less and less competitive over time when you have other platforms like Ghost, which take absolutely nothing. And that need to continue growing at a fast pace and to return capital to investors, I think ultimately does come to a head with their proposed goal of of supporting these creators. Mm. But I think also an underrated aspect that you just spoke to, Rob, is that a lot of people almost look down upon the ad-based model. But it's important to note that, as simple as this sounds, as soon as you put your content behind a paywall, your ability to grow is so much more limited. And that's why so many people go with the ad-based model. I mean, think about the Hustles newsletter. We were able to grow to a million, recently two million subscribers, because we weren't expecting that someone paid us up front. And we were able to turn that into a successful business model and then later tack on a subscription, which was trends. But I think a lot of people hear this almost like romanticized version of like, I can start monetizing immediately on platforms, not just Substack, but these paid newsletter platforms. And they almost forget that they, by making that decision, are restricting their growth and ultimately the ceiling that they can hit. And some people don't care about that, but I almost Mm -hmm. feel like this narrative can be harmful to some creators because they don't know what they're ultimately hampering. Sure. A hundred percent. Steph, you literally just basically summarized my experience with Substack. So I I left Substack at the beginning of 2021 to try Ghost and to try to go paid. And before I did it, I'd taken a survey of my audience to see like how many people would actually consider paying and how much they would actually pay. And I got some pretty good data back. Like I I found that about 5% of my subscribers said they'd be willing to pay like between five and $10 per month for a paid version of the newsletter. I went paid, I launched it, that did not happen. The conversion process was very, very slow. And for me, the calculus of, do I actually wanna do one post a week for you know 20 people? <laughs> Just, it didn't make sense from a growth perspective. So you hit the nail on the head with that. And I think, just tying it back to kind of the recent news about Substack, two of the biggest things that I think they need to do to really be successful is, first of all, help fill the top of the funnel for their writers, help them get in front of new readers that might be interested in their content. And second of all, help them convert those free readers into paid subscribers. I feel like that's part of the reason that they launched the app. And I I actually anecdotally got some subscribers randomly a few weeks ago when the app launched, and I haven't written anything on my Substack in a little while. So it seems like they're doing something right there. Well, let me ask a question to close this out. How many paid newsletter subscriptions do each of you subscribe to? Because I also think that's a ceiling that Substack is going to run up against if they aren't already. Uh, zero. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, so, Zach, what about trends? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You get that for free. I have free access to trends, so I'm already You're covered good. there. But yeah, I don't pay for, for any newsletter subscriptions right now. You know, I might be a little bit biased here because, like I said, I have some friends whose newsletters I respect that I get access to for free without having to pay for them. But I think it's a broader question than just Substack. I think it's just subscriptions in general. Um, I don't think people are going to be willing to pay, you know, five, ten bucks a month for like 40 different subscriptions every month totally. into the future. So, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about bundling as a potential business model or kind of consolidation of subscriptions, something's going to have to happen in that space in order to make this tenable for for most people. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Zach. I do not subscribe to any individual paid substacks anymore. I used to. Mm-hmm. I, I There's a while where I did, 
but it just became kind of content overload. Now, I mean, I subscribe to the Boston Globe because I live in the Boston area. The one kind of like creator whose work I subscribe to, I, I pay for the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, which is about $2 an episode. He puts out like mm. two a month. So that's like the one thing that I pay for from a creator. Mm, per episode. That's an interesting business model. Yeah. It's, it's through Patreon. I mean, like I've been reading Brett Easton Ellis' stuff since I was, you know, in high school. So like I, I have this long history with his work and really respect his criticism. So that's the only reason that I pay for that. But yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that it's really unlikely that people are going to pay for just a ton of individual subscriptions going forward. Sure. How about you, Steph? So I'm right there with you. I subscribe to Making Sense by Sam Harris. But other than that, I, I don't know if I actually pay for any paid newsletters. Mm-hmm. That's actually really funny, Steph, because I pay for waking up his meditation app. <laughs> so there you really go. Funny. Maybe I should yeah. uh, subscribe to that too. I probably could use it. <laughs> it's really good. All right. So where are all these mysterious people paying 10 bucks a month for newsletters? <laughs> <laughs> I do think the best possible thing for Substack is to have people write about like specific niche business topics that can be expensed. Like that's obviously what I was doing, but I'm not tuning my own horn. And I already said that didn't work for me, but I do think that it could work in other spaces. Sure. sure. All right. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks for tuning into the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor is Robert Hartwig and our executive producer is Darren Clark. If you liked what you heard today, we've got a lot more tech and business coverage over at the hustle.co. We'll catch you all tomorrow.